0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In 2014, students from a rural college in Mexico came under attack by police. Six people were killed and 43 young men disappeared without a trace. Families suspected the government was hiding the truth. Anayansi Diaz cortez and Kate Doyle, who created the After Ayotzinapa series for Reveal, will speak at Utah Tech University on September 26th. They're joining us for the program today should mention last year Utah Tech University brought a Remember the 43 Students installation to campus. And they're bringing that installation back and adding an additional uh, installation by Scottish artist Jan Nimmo on campus on September 16th through the 30th. Another note, Reveal is heard on Utah Public Radio Mondays at 11 a.m. and Saturdays uh, at noon. And we bring in um, our guest today, Anianza Diaz-Cortez, is a senior reporter and producer for Reveal Investigations, and her work's been featured everywhere from All Things Considered to Radio Ambulante and This American Life. She's a recipient of Overseas Press Club Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and Third Coast Richard A. Dry- Dryhouse uh, Foundation Award previously produced Radio Diaries, and has done extensive reporting in both the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, so, Anianza Díaz-Cortes, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. Am I getting your name anywhere close?
1: Oh, my God, you're so good. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh,
0: at least, at least uh, somewhat close. Uh, we also bring in Kate Doyle. She's a senior analyst of U.S. policy in Latin America at the National Security Archive. She directs uh, several major research projects, including the Mexico Project, which collects U.S. and Mexican government documents on the country's shared histories. Since 1992, she's worked with Latin American human rights groups, truth commissions, and prosecutors and judges to obtain government files from secret archives that shed uh, light on state violence. Uh, Kate Doyle, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Appreciate, appreciate you both uh, joining us here. I uh, should mention that uh, the, the, the two of you will be at Utah Tech University uh, September 26th, and people can hear you speak, 4 p.m. Zion Room on the Utah Tech uh, campus. The whole All these events kick off on September 15th, opening ceremony for the those events, and then those installations will be up September 16th through September uh, 30th. We did a program on this about a year ago. Uh, talked with John Gibler among uh, other other guests. Uh, interesting to to come back and and to hear, I'm I'm sure more uh, that's been uncovered on this this horrible event. Uh, maybe we could start with you, uh Diaz Cortez. Uh, tell me first about uh, this rural teachers college and, and the kinds of students that uh, the study there. Uh,
1: of course. So you know the the rural teachers college. Um, um, you know, the, the types of students that study there are, are traditionally Marxist, leftist students, you, uh, an all-boys school, son of, of, you know, not necessarily called farm workers, but campesinos, which is slightly different in Mexico, um, but, but sons of farm workers who are training to be teachers. Now, you know, in, in Guerrero, it is one of the poorest states in Mexico, um, so, you know, I, as I say in the podcast, as they say in Guerrero, there's usually, you know, limited v- venues for, for, for growth and you can, you know, you can go to El Otro Lado, you can kind of migrate to the United States, you can become part of, you know, the drug cartel and, and, and be involved in that. But this school, um, La Normal de Ayotzinapa, is seen as kind of like the speaking of hope for people that hope to not only become teachers, but go back to their communities Um to their campesino communities all over Guerrero and teach there. So it's really um it was started on the, you know on around the nineteen twenties, a decade or so after the Mexican Revolution in like a leftist tradition, leftist socialist tradition of really upholding the rural farm working class and and training to be teachers. Mm. So that so that's where this root this is rooted.
0: That's the background, yes um so it's it's been what now eight years since these uh, horrific events uh, september twenty sixth twenty seventh um it, it quite complicated what happened here terrifying. um maybe you could you know just just tell us uh, what happened
1: of course. so so on the evening, it was actually a rainy and stormy night of september twenty sixth twenty fourteen these, these, you know, a group of these boys, about 70 of them, um, maybe a little more, are heading into a city called Iguala to w- what we call commandeer buses, which is basically taking over passenger buses, because in these rural poor schools, even though they're subsidized by the state, um, there's no transportation. So a workaround, you know, for, for many decades across Mexico has been to Go into passenger buses, talk with the driver and the passengers, and tell them that they're going to commandeer these buses and and use them in this case for a field trip to Mexico City, happening days after on October second, where they would basically borrow the buses. The drivers, you know, tend to go along with it, and you know, there's no, you know, there's no arms involved or, or anything of of that sort. It's more kind of a plea for for donations. And you know, sometimes the the boys would carry rocks because, you know, they're they're kind of a nuisance to the police in in the area. And but it's a known kind of thing. And on this night, this was happening where, you know, it was five buses that were being commandeered out of the city of Iguala were moving you know, were moving away from the city when suddenly they're barricaded by police. And, you know, the the boys I think at this point a lot of these testimonies from John Gibler's book, actually, and the work he has done, a lot of the boys have rocks and are ready kind of for a rustle or a fight or maybe to run away. And as the, you know, they're stopping, they just start to hear gunshots and gunshots and gunshots coming off from the cops to the point that, um, you know, as they would say, they were shooting, shooting to kill, that um, one of the boys, Aldo Gutierrez Solano, shot in the head and is laying, you know, on the floor convulsing in front of the buses. Um, and, and you know, it's not only this bus, it's it's basically a night of terror, but at this point, from one of the buses exiting, the city's 43 students are taken out. Um, you know, we talk about this in the podcast. One of the boys is trying to fight back. He gets shot in the arm. There's blood everywhere. This bus surrenders. The boys are taken off, put on the ground, you know, head down on the ground, um, kind of mocked, you know, what the, 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 boy, the young man that was shot in the arm. They put a barrel to his head, and they basically tell him, and if I shoot him and if I kill him, they call an ambulance minutes later. He gets sent in an ambulance, but in his testimony, as he looks away, he sees his friends and his compañeros, his his classmates being taken away in police trucks, basically with the cops, putting all the, all the men face down and putting their their feet on their backs and driving away. Now, you know, because of this kind of, Commandeering buses, work around. I was telling you about the boys are thinking the the parents and the families. You know, after this night of terror ensues, they're thinking they're arrested or they're in police custody of some sort because there's numerous, I mean, dozens of people seeing them being taken off by the cops. But it turns out that they were not taken by the cops, and in fact, they are nowhere to be found. These forty-three young men after this night. And through that night, all the way until six in the morning, until dawn, there are testimonies of the boys, of the rest of the boys, being hunted down by civilians with AK-47s, by military officials, by state police, and federal police. So, um, so that is the gist and the bulk of what happened on this complicated night where these forty-three young men disappeared without a trace, as you said at the Mm -hmm. at the top of the hour.
0: Uh, so Kate Doyle, um, this is uh, you know very distressing for the families. What, what's their reaction? What's what what happens then? I guess you you look for your boys, right?
2: You do. Although in Mexico there have been human rights atrocities uh, that we know about. You know, going back to the fifties, the sixties, the seventies. In fact, one of the most notorious human rights tragedies that occurred targeting students took place in 1968 when a group of students in Mexico City who were holding a protest were fired upon by soldiers and members of the security forces and numerous people were killed and injured. At that time, in 1968, the families were so frightened by what had happened and by the power of the state to punish them or hurt them further, that there really wasn't the kind of outcry you might think would happen if your child had been killed in a public demonstration like that. People were were terrified by what might happen to other members of their family, other students, and they basically quietly collected the remains of their young ones uh, as best they could and didn't sort of mount a huge public protest over this. The Ayotzinapa families, now we fast forward decades to 2014. By contrast, the Ayotzinapa families have, from the moment of learning of, of the disappearance of their boys, have, have stepped up fully to demonstrate, to call out the government, to demand action to to actively themselves search for their boys um, in you know mountainsides, in 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 forests, uh, in, in, in in dangerous places. And, and and they've really been a kind of exemplar or amazing model of, you know, how to fight back against not just, you know, the the horrible crime that was committed. But the silence of the government initially, the the, the inaction of the government, and ultimately the, the the active sabotage by the government of the investigation into what happened to their to their children. Um, so, and and that has gone on since that day. They have not stopped speaking out, um, again demanding action, banging on the doors of of, of federal officials. Uh, in, Many of the families, many of the mothers and fathers actually travel hours from their homes in Guerrero, usually on public transportation, to get to Mexico City on the 26th, which was the day the boys disappeared, of course, in September 2014, on the 26th of every month of every year since the boys disappeared. So this is eight years of monthly gatherings in mexico city to march and remind people that their boys are still missing
0: so these are uh there were mass protests and regular protests here right what what changed between 1968 and and 2014 and up up till now that uh the the state of terror i guess and feeling like you you couldn't do anything to uh, now feeling like well we can protest
2: well, in, in, in 1968, Mexico was still essentially a one-party state. Um, the same institutional revolutionary party, the PRI, had ruled the country since uh, the years right after the revolution. So the first thing that changed is that in 2000, there was a political transition for the very first time in 71 years when a candidate from another political party um, was elected to office. That's President Vicente Fox. And that began a process of, of opening, of democratization. Um, Mexico was always sort of a, 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 a democracy in name, but when it got down to the facts of elections and the free press and the people being able to gather or not, it was, it was not a democratic country in the way that we might understand it that that really began to change in the 2000s and i think that you know part of the reason for these families courage i mean first and for, foremost it comes from this visceral like need to do something second secondly these are families from Guerrero who are used to fighting for 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 every inch of land that they are able to farm for 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 the food for the health services i mean guerrero is one of the most Neglected, abandoned states in in Mexico among 31 states. So so another reason is, is their own um, determination, their own willingness to fight. But but I do think that there you know have been political changes in Mexico that make it much harder. Uh, combined with social you know the existence of social media, it makes it much harder for the government to simply put their foot on the necks of people like that and say, you be quiet or else. It just, it, it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and these families were courageous enough to step forward and, and, uh, and, and, and they continue to do so today. So they've, they've become a really important force in Mexico for, for change.
0: Let me turn back to uh, Ana Yancy Diaz-Cortez. Talking about these protests, uh, the mass protests, ongoing protests, I believe uh, these 43 disappeared young men have become uh, symbols, you know, not just this incident, but more broadly. Tell me about that.
1: Sure, Um, and this is a word I've learned from working with Kate Doyle, but this is what is seen as um, what's called in human human rights people call a paradigmatic case. And so the way to really read it as a kind of watershed moment in mexico right when initially these parents are told you know they go they look for their children they're told yeah go to the state capital. you know go protest there you'll be swapped for dna take your birth certificates file missing persons reports they're told nothing and then at some point they 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 want an independent investigation to work alongside the government, an independent forensics team to work alongside the government Government that swabs them for DNA kind of separately. So very early on, even in the weeks, I mean, again, John Gibler was present for much of this. Um, the parents are told, you know, we found your boys, and they're in these graves, and it's likely to be them, and they're in this place. And then it turns out that once... They start to try to match this DNA because the parents have you know have now an an independent forensic team working for them. They're, they they're a whole different set of people and other you know bodies belonging to other families. And just this moment where it's like, you know, how many more mass graves are there, it it forces people, especially in Guerrero, to just take to the mountains and look, look for remains for, for people that had had missing persons in their families and were either... You know, told to go home, told that their family members went to the United States or left with another man or woman, and and they start to realize that this is much more than like an individual case, but it's 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 an epidemic and and a product of 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 violence in the, in the region and in the country. So really, it's from this case and these parents and these movement that that they're. Becomes an awareness of this phenomenal force forced across Mexico that wasn't being recognized by the state, by the government. Um, so, so that's that that is the symbol that this represents. So often in marches, you know, these monthly marches, they you know they become marches for the now 105,000. I think Kate can give us a more specific number of of you know in of 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 people that have been disappeared, and you will see these 43 parents leading that march with their photos at, at at the top and they have become leaders of a movement as 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 Kate was mentioning mm-hmm.
0: Kate Doyle anything you'd like to uh, add to, to that before we go to break
2: it's so important that anansi brought up this issue of this, this this gigantic I guess elephant in the room is the cliche of of, of, of the disappeared in Mexico, because, yes, this case is a paradigmatic case or an illustrative, uh, 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 it's a special case, but it is one case among what is now believed to be 105,000 cases of missing and disappeared people. That is not a, a, a sort of a guesstimate. That is a number that the National Commission for the Search for Missing and Disappeared, which is a, is a new federal Agency that was established by the current president of Mexico in 2019 ha- has has arrived at w- with names. It is it, these are documented cases that the the commission uh, for the search for the missing arrived at by, by by speaking to prosecutors in every state in the country and and tabulating essentially the names of people reported missing. So 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 just as Anayansi said, the families really did a a service to the country in the sense that they brought attention to an issue that had existed for decades and yet really had no kind of wide attention, no real concerted or, 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 or coordinated response by the federal or the state governments. And for the first time, uh, once the families began to demand change, demand information, demand that searches be carried out, mothers and fathers all over the country began to mobilize. Uh, around there disappeared. And, and they began to, in fact, start searching themselves in, as we were discussing before, the deserts and the forests and the riverbanks all over Mexico, where people have said to have gone missing in these places where violence reigns. So so that 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 has been both a, an extraordinary thing about this case, and I think for for many Mexicans also kind of a sad and frustrating thing about this case, because the government has poured money and resources and staff into the Ayotzinapa investigation, and although they have taken steps to establish um, protocols and a process for the government to respond to the other 105. Mm -hmm. thousand disappeared that that no other case gets this kind of support and 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 that just underlines or underscores the importance of the government solving this case ultimately
0: let's take a break we'll have much more on this uh when we come back uh, i want to talk about the 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 mexican government's official story and then had that how that began to fall apart and what's What's been found out, uh, including with this series after IOTC Napa, series for Reveal, uh, and we're talking with the uh, two who created that uh, series, uh, Anayansi Diaz cortes and Kate Doyle on the program today. They'll be speaking at Utah Tech University on September 26th. Um, There'll be a couple of uh, installations uh, beginning on the 16th and running through the 26th. Um, at Utah Tech University. Remember the 43 students and also a new installation by Scottish artist Jen Nimmo. A note here, Reveal, is heard on UPR Mondays at 11 a.m. and Saturdays at noon. And you can find Reveal at uh, revealnews.org. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2014, students from a rural college in Mexico came under attack by police. Forty-three young men disappeared without a trace. And uh, that anniversary is coming up September 26th and 27th. It will be commemorated on the campus of Utah Tech University in St. George. Um, on September 15th, there will be an opening ceremony for those events. September 16th through the 30th, the two art installations will be on display at Utah Tech University uh, campus. September 26th, Anansi Diaz-Cortez and Kate Doyle, who are my guests on the program today, will be visiting Utah Tech University. They'll give a talk at 4 p.m. in the Zion Room uh, to Utah Tech campus. And uh, more information on all of these events at Utah Tech can be found at rememberthe43students.com, rememberthe43students.com. Uh, my guest today, Anianci Diaz-Cortez and Kate Doyle, produced a series for Reveal. It's called After Ayotzinapa, and you can find that at revealnews.org. Uh, so let me start uh, the segment with uh, Anianci Diaz-Cortez. Uh, what was the official version of these events from the Mexican government initially
1: yes so um you know in the weeks that followed and certainly by you know by by january by the end of the fall um the official version of events went as follows right the boys were taken away yes by local police but those local police were in cahoots with like these local criminals that then took you know they were handed off they were taken to a garbage dump named the Kukula Garbage Dump, which becomes like a big, you know, a big deal at at, at the time. And at this dump, they were basically—this is such a brutal, brutal, brutal theory as well. So just you know, a disclaimer for that for your audience. But it's—and—and and as you can imagine, for the parents, they were taken to this dump. They were shot by one one by one. Some were said to have been suffocated on the way. They were thrown over about forty, what, forty meters of garbage, a whole, a big steep and cliff of garbage, and then they were, you know, they were with gasoline and tires. Um, allegedly, they were burnt over sixteen hours into, you know, what, what, what they called charred remains. Those remains, you know, the burnt remains were then put into plastic garbage bags and taken, driven to an or taken to a nearby river. And then in that river, the bags were thrown into the river except for one bag, which kind of was thrown in half-heartedly and, and spread out. Now, now they know, they, they, they alleged that this happened because they bring not only the forensics, the Mexican forensics team, but also the, the forensics team that was investigating for the parents come to the river where these bones are laid out, and one of these bones, you know, none of them are recognizable um, enough, but one of them is big enough to, to get sent to a lab in Innsbruck, Austria, where it is matched to a student. So this one bone is matched to a student, effectively closing the case and calling it La Verdad Histórica, which translates to the historical truth or the absolute truth, and because of this one bone being matched of one student, they close the case or try to close the case by, you know, December of 2014, a couple of months later. Um, and, of course, the parents, just they just don't believe it. As one mother said to us, she's like, I am a campesina, I work with fire, I know how fire works. So initially they think it's purely impossible that a fire that big could have happened and burned the students to such a point that only one one young man could be recognized and not only are they protesting throughout the fall, but into January, the outrage is so big and the protests have garnered so much support in the capital, in Mexico City, that they bring on, um, you know, they bring in an independent investigation made up of, you know, five international experts to look into this case independently as a response to this government's kind of official theory and, and their response to closing the case.
0: Mm. Uh, Kate Doyle, where where does that official government case, uh, you know, where else does it fall apart? We've we've heard about the the fire and the skepticism about that.
2: Oh, there are so many holes in this historical truth that the Attorney General Jesus Murillo Karam, outlined and his lead investigator Thomas Zeron, um, and and you know. It it certainly, in a way, began with that story of the dump, but it immediately became evident um, a number of things. One, all of the men that had been picked up as suspects, um, most of them, not all, some of them were in the local police force, but most of them part of this, what the government painted as a kind of local gang of thugs, that called itself Guerreros Unidos, which is which means United Warriors, which is a narco-trafficking gang, a criminal organized crime gang. Most of the men that were members of that gang or allegedly members, picked up by the government to help them unravel the story, turns out were brutally tortured by the government by government forces, and not just low-level government forces. We, we I mean, very quickly it became evident that. Um, Thomas said himself, who was the head of the investigation for the Mexican government, members of the uh, Marine Marines, the, the military Marines, members of the federal police, senior people, were present in the torture of some of the detainees who had been picked up as suspects. So number one, that taints immediately the kind of information that you are supposedly getting from them about what happened, and these detainees later allege that the government essentially told them what they needed to say. Number two, um, it turns out that this so-called gang of thugs is, is an international or transnational narco trafficking or criminal organization. And when the uh, Mexican government reluctantly invited this group of five experts, as Ana Yancey referred to, basically at the prodding, not just of the families, but certainly of the families, the lawyers that represented them, but also the press, and there was so much international pressure. It was so clear that there was something wrong with this government investigation, this official story. Once the um, five experts arrived in Mexico in March of 2015, about six months after the crime had been committed, crime, they very quickly discovered that Guerrero Unidos, this gang that operated in Iguala and that was working with the police on their illicit activities and certainly in in cahoots to kidnap and kill these boys, that they were also operating in a place that will be much more familiar to your listeners, uh, and that is Chicago, Illinois. They have or had a major heroin distribution ring in the Midwest region that operated out of Chicago or the outskirts of Chicago. and. As the Ayotzinapa case was unfolding, so was the final stage of an investigation by the DEA, the Drug and Force Administration in Chicago, that had been going on for about a year and a half investigating members of Guerrero Subidos and how they were distributing heroin. So suddenly this idea that the government painted, this idea that the government described, that the boys were this sort of unfortunate victims of these local corrupt guys. You know Guerrero. Guerrero's corrupt. Guerrero's a violent place. I mean, this was the idea. And it's really sad, but it was just a bad... They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hmm. Suddenly this idea is just blown to bits because it's not a local issue. It's a major drug trafficking organization that, for whatever reason targeted these 43, these boys. Um, so, so there were a number of different elements of that official story that pretty quickly collapsed once people who were skilled at investigating and committed to finding the truth about what happened, stepped into the picture, these five experts, and began to take apart what had really gone on.
0: I want to follow up uh, just briefly with you, Kate Doyle. Um, I'm reading from uh, revealnews.org this episode after... Oinapa of course that you two uh, produced um, and uh, running through my mind I'm sure yours and other investigators is why why this intensity these you know the commandeering a bus yes um, you know wrong place wrong time but the intensity of this uh, of this you know, the 43 disappeared I'm just reading here uh, uh, quoting you from this series the Mexican government never even posed the question did the students commandeer a bus loaded with heroin? That could explain this intensity, right? It
2: could. It could. And that is certainly now a theory of the case. Um, I think that I mean, one, of, one of the reasons we posed that uh, idea or, or possibility in the podcast is because we, we were able to interview the special agent in charge of that DEA investigation in Chicago that specifically targeted these Guerreros Unidos members there as they were distributing heroin and then taking the cash and sending it back into Mexico. And it turns out that these drug traffickers in Chicago used passenger buses to smuggle the drugs from Iguala and the Guerrero region through the long state of, I mean, uh, country of Mexico over the border and into the United States. And once they had received their cash for the drugs they brought, they would hide the cash in the same secret compartments they had built into these passenger buses and the buses would turn around, pick up pick, pick up a bunch of passengers, legit passenger bus company, and drive the money back over the border and down into Guerrero. So 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 we we learned from our, our DEA source whose name is Mark Joffre. Uh, that, that, That the DEA, without knowing anything about Ayotzinapa and the students initially when they were doing their own investigation, discovered this fact about this gang, that they used buses in that way. And that's why he told us, Mark told us, when we were interviewing him, and this is also in the podcast, he said, you know... I, I read a, a Time magazine story that said the students were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and, and he said, and I said to myself, I almost shouted it out loud, no, they went in the wrong place at the wrong time. They, they took the wrong bus. They took the wrong bus. He was convinced that the only reason the students could have been targeted with that kind of ferocity was because they may have unwittingly boarded a bus that was part of that network. We do not know the answer to that question. And and I think one of the things that, um, I mean, obviously, the the current government investigation is deeply looking into that, but, you know, this is eight years later, and that bus doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So I think think it's important to both validate that as a possible theory, and that, that lives within the context of this crime taking place as part of in a way, sort of the narco-trafficking that goes on and the drug war that responds to it, also not get distracted by some of the issues that still need serious investigation. And that that is, what were the role of, 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 of actors, state actors, beyond these local policemen? There were military people in the area. There's a military base in Iguala, the town where the boys were kidnapped, and the military were all over that city, the entire time these crimes took place and never intervened. There were federal police in the area. The, the 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 Guerrero state authorities botched the investigation so dramatically that in the beginning that it became difficult not to think that they were doing this deliberately. So there's there's a number of lines of investigation that that are also really important to follow. I, I do believe that the special prosecutor today is trying to follow them, but but these are very sensitive and tough
0: issues in Mexico. Uh, before we go to break, I want to turn back to on Diaz-Cortez uh, and uh, pose to you this question that uh, Kate Dolez has, uh, has posed. What, um, what's what been happening recently in in this they're they're promising uh, leads that we that we have that are making progress in this case.
1: Yeah, so so one important context before, you know, j- jumping into these promising leads is that, you know, while while this bus theory is is developed in our podcast quite substantially and and mostly because, you know, once the, these independent experts start to, you know, once the investigation of the historical truth, truth starts to unravel because of these independent experts, one of the, the things is that they discover that, you know, initially the government was like it was four buses. It was four buses. There's security footage that shows a fist bus. There's, again, this evidence of potential military involvement. There's also this idea that maybe that, that bone that matched with the student was planted by Tomás Ceron, the, the, the lead investigator himself. So all of this taken together produces a situation where these experts and their secretary who who we go into depth in our podcast Omar Gomez Dejo has to leave Mexico. Um for a fair amount of time almost you know they all leave Mexico and Omar it's he's the only Mexican he ends up in in Washington which is where um he meets Kate, Kate Doyle and together they start to really lobby um, the U.S. government and work on this case together to to kind of ask for for information about about the Chicago end of things. So so we now know that this new investi- you know this new investigation then cut to 2018. This man Omar is then hired to lead the new government's investigation into this crime, and then the case is reopened. And the president of Mexico now Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador actually campaigns on the promise to these parents that he will find the truth of what happened to their boys so so you know the, this person that had been so involved in this case is now leading the investigation so when we talk about what what the findings are it's it's mostly his team and um and really you know as 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 kate mentioned not not only the torture and the buses and the connection to out in chicago but most recently what what the government this new government has come out saying and, and validating is that this was not only a crime of the state, it was then covered up by the state, by this former administration. And this is really kind of an act of transparency by this new government in, in, in stating that. And as Kate mentioned, this kind of connection of Guerrero Unidos to Chicago, from Iguala to Chicago, is an active lead where, you know, we, we know that the, you know, the DA and the U.S. government are actively, actively giving this new investigation, everything they have on the case. Um, now Tommasedon, so the person who you know who allegedly might have planted that bone is in Israel now. so they're trying to force you know to get him extradited. So those are just some things um, I know you have to cut to break that that have been that have been developing in the past year year and a half with this new investigation.
0: yeah, a lot 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 going on, and a lot of that triggered by the the election of the new president, right? a new kind of a new attitude to this. Um, Exactly. uh, Let's, uh, let's take another break. We'll come back with a brief final segment, uh, wrap things up here for this episode of Access Utah. We're talking with Ana Diaz, Diaz Cortez and Kate Doyle. They created a series for Reveals called After Ayotzinapa, and they'll they'll be speaking at Utah Tech University on September 26th. You can find out more about all the events at Utah Tech University at rememberthe43students.com, and uh, you can find out more. You can actually listen to these episodes of Reveal at revealnews.org. More follows this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, we have about uh, just five minutes left, actually, in the in the program today. So we'll just get some final comments from our two guests, Anayansi Díaz Cortés and Kate Doyle. They created the After Ayotzinapa series for Reveal. They're speaking at Utah State, Utah Tech University, uh, on September 26th. More information on all the events. There'll be a couple of uh, art installations. On uh, the U- Utah Tech campus, uh, this uh, talk by Anayansi Diaz Cortez and Kate Doyle. You can find uh, information about all of those events um, at uh, Remember the Forty Three studentscom Make sure that's correct. Remember the Forty Three studentscom Yes. Uh, so let me start uh, first with uh, Anayansi Diaz Cortez. Um, just uh, just about two or three minutes. Uh, what what's your takeaway uh, from this?
1: Sure. One thing um, I, I would like to mention as well um, about the new developments is that one very important key moment in this new investigation is that as they're building leads and trying to get to the bottom of like who might have been involved on the night, sources come up, leading you know you know the prosecutor and his team to a new set of, of remains in this place called the Butcher's Ravine. Um, um, la Barranca de la Carnicería literally translates to that. And there they found um, two remains that matched two more students. One was a, a foot bone that, um, that was matched to Cristian Rodriguez de Lumbre. And, you know, the podcast um, f- features his, his parent as well, his mother, where we talk about that so that's a huge development in the case and effectively proves that not only did the were the boys not burned at the dump they weren't taken to a river and that this whole kind of absolute truth fabricated by the previous administration was not only a cover up but actively misleading the parents in in finding their their son so that's you know that's one thing i would add and 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 the last thing is just the the hope for this new investigation to get to the bottom of what happened that night for a, for a mother right who wants to know who gave what order what happened when and 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 how.
0: Mm. Okay, Dora, what's what's your uh, takeaway from from all of this?
2: I think for American listeners in particular, we need to focus on one of the aspects of this terrible, terrible story uh, that. That, 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 that speaks to us, that, that affects us, and that is that these boys were, in some way, collateral damage in the war on drugs. Um, the Americans and the Mexicans have for now um, over 10 years, and, and in fact going back 40 years, but most intense, intensively over 10 years, collaborated on the militarization of the drug war, of turning our shared drug problem, because it is shared, into this exclusively sort of security-minded issue. Uh, the Mexicans have 105,000 disappeared people, most of them during the, the last 10 years. We have 108,000 drug overdose deaths from last year alone. So it's, it's, it's a shared problem, and I would say it's a shared failed strategy. And somehow, Ayatina 43 kind of, to me, is emblematic of the disasters that have radiated out of the failed strategy time and time again. If the military and the police, who we fund, who we support, who we train with millions of dollars of taxpayer money, are then selves involved in kidnapping and killing civilians in pursuit of their own criminal activities, well, something about this is not, you know, this picture, something's wrong with this picture. So my takeaway from this terrible crime and, and the story that we've been able to tell so far is that is that I hope it forces us to um, open that conversation again up about what are we doing to address one of the greatest policy failures and tragedies that is unfolding in both of our countries.
0: Well, we'll encourage you to go and uh, listen to that series uh, for reveal. It's called After Ayotzinapa, and it created by Anianci uh, Diaz-Cortez and Kate Doyle. You can find that at revealnews.org. Just uh, search for after Ayotzinapa. Um, and uh, Anayansi Diaz-Cortez and Kate Doyle will be on the Utah Tech University campus in St. George on September 26th. Uh, they'll be speaking there at 4 p.m. in the Zion Room on the Utah Tech campus. Um, September 15th is an opening ceremony for the uh, all of these uh, events for the 43 disappeared Students, including the unveiling of the portraits by uh, artist Jan Nimo and uh, the 43 Students um, Silhouettes installation created by Stephen Lee. Then September 16th through the 30th, those arts installations will be on display at Utah Tech University uh, campus. More information at rememberthe43students.com. So Aniansi Diaz Cortez, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Kate Doyle. I appreciate you uh, joining us as well. Thank you,
2: Tom. Thanks for the invitation. It was an honor to be able to talk to you.
0: Thank you. We'll go out as we do uh, on the second Monday of every month with "She Goes On" with uh, Tanya Gibson.
3: I've started weight training. It's completely overwhelming to start something new, and even more so when you're mid-age and, more importantly, exercise-adverse. Exercise-adverse does not mean exercise never happens, but I'm definitely not one to eagerly look forward to it. But still, I will never be mistaken for one who bounds out of bed to hit the gym or run year-round regardless of weather. When I was young, exercise was simply built into my life. I rode my bike daily and for miles. I danced. I walked to the bus stop and back again, which added miles and uphill, but only one way, I swear. And yet, I still used the more feminine excuses to get out of gym class during volleyball or worse, dodgeball. College came and there were more dancing of increasing variety, walking to classes and to get groceries. And hang out with boys and then by my mid-twenties after I was the person who started running, but only in the spring and the fall, a doctor advised me to stop being so unkind to my knees and life took over and natural activity petered out. I was thinking of all of this recently on vacation, a vacation to our favorite spot just off of a sandy miles-long beach where every morning I would walk for hours and get my steps in before the day really got started. A break from my habit of rowing machine meters before breakfast and one I welcomed heartily. It's not that I hate my mornings on the rowing machine, phone secured, showed, teed up, earbuds entertaining me while I row meter upon meter, but I don't love it either. I started rowing just over five years ago knowing that I needed to do something to keep me healthy and around, but I never really found my groove with it. Not when my one million meters road pin came and not as I rounded upward toward five. It simply wasn't doing anything for me. My husband encouraged me to start using weights, but I resisted and then actively fought against doing so. I could list the variety of excuses I had, but it came down to resentment. I resented being mid-age, I resented my naturally thin frame during young adulthood, I resented that I had to put any effort into keeping my health, I resented that I needed to carve out time during my day to do something I hated simply because it was good for me. And if we really drill down into it, I resented everyone who didn't have to try so hard. Up and down the coast, jumping sandy cave and crabs that lost their way, I thought this was somehow the answer. If we moved to a sleepy coastal town, I could not only write while staring at the waves in the ocean crashing nearby, I could walk the beach up and down and back again to not only keep fit, but keep the cobwebs of the mind at bay. It made perfect sense during that week away. Of course, perfect sense on vacation ignores things like jobs and kids and school and responsibility in our perfectly good landlocked home. So it was after we were home that I began weight training. It started poorly. I'm awkward enough at most things athletic, but this was another realm altogether. I couldn't quite figure anything out, and my patient husband had trouble using words that made any sense whatsoever, and there were definite tears. All mine. After a couple of weeks of his tutoring, I started running down my list of moves before he left for work and went out on my own. Every push, I remembered what amazing shape I was in in high school. With every pull, I was reminded that I could do every trick in ballroom and country dance in college. With each exercise change, I cursed everything from old versions of me to current versions of influencer gym rats to our forever home having a definite lack of ocean in its backyard. But by the third week, I noticed something. Change. Change in how my body responded change in how I approach the equipment, change in my arms. I'm still a long way from any amount of measurable change and further still from liking any of it at all, but by week three there was a start and I'll cling to that through the foreseeable weeks to come. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On.